and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello and welcome to 9 to 42, which is the podcast from the guys at the Guitar Show UK. And looking very resplendent. Is that denim, that shirt, Jace? It is denim, yes. But is that, your, is that your thingy, your, your what's it, top underneath? A Breton. Is it yes. a Breton t-shirt underneath? Yeah, yeah. Right. You're getting slightly embarrassed. you today, mate. You're slightly embarrassed by that Breton t-shirt, aren't you? I'm not embarrassed. It's just that you point out that I wear them all the time. And I you don't do. wear them all the time. You do. I just coincidentally wear them all the time when we're on bloody podcasts. Yeah. We went out on Friday and I didn't have one on. You did. And to be honest, I wanted to mention that and thank you publicly because you very kindly ripped a ticket out of one of your mate's hands and gave it to me for the Jason Isbell concert on Friday night, didn't you? I didn't quite rip it out of his hands. I mean, it was we'd have arranged to go to three gigs together pre the pandemic. Post the pandemic, with all of the rescheduled date, he hasn't been able to make any of them. <laughs> so um, slightly unfortunate. I've had a great time at all three. Hmm. Um, well, I had a great time Friday night. Yeah, it was so good. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So I thought it was great. Uh, joining us this evening, uh, we have Steve Lawson. And Steve is, um, we've agreed on, bassist, journalist and academic. Yeah, that sounds about right. Three words that I don't know have ever been put together before. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of any of the other bass playing journalists I know would also be academics. Uh, probably not, no. No. No, I don't think I've ever heard those three strung together. <laughs> Certainly not as a kind of as a thing that someone would be proud of. Anyway, <laughs> is is it in the right order? Is bassist, journalist, is that the right order for? Yeah, it? I mean, I think I think for me, making music is the centre of the wheel. Certainly, that that's right. the hub. That everything else comes out of that. That my journalism started because I met the editor of Bassist magazine back in the nineties. Uh, in a shop, and I just said, and I went all Yossa Hughes on him. I went, yeah, I guess a job, I can do that. And uh, and he went, he was either kind of it was a toss up between getting a police order to keep me away from him or, or letting me do it. And so I wrote a piece, and and after a protracted thing where I'd forgotten to give them a, like my phone number or address or anything, I just I, I hand wrote it and sent it to them on paper. And eventually, I met them at, a, at the National Music Show, and they went, "You dickhead!" And said, "Buy a computer, please, and write us one a month." So, I, so the, the journalism started by accident like that. So that wasn't, but it was because I was a player and what I was writing about was pedals and tech because they didn't have anybody who did that. So I went, mm. I can write about all that guff. Yeah, yeah, that's my thing. So I, I, it was, it, I started creating my own job. And then and the academic thing kind of came out of, of me doing masterclasses. I would kind of get invited to universities. Like, again, again, this was off the back of the, 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 the kind of combination of playing and journalism that I would do clinics either for the magazine at the national music show or for companies that i was gear i was using and so universities were booking that kind of early 2000s and at the end of each session i'd go any questions and kids would go yeah how the hell do you make a living as a solo bass player what's that about and so then it became a thing that was about how you know what the sort of the music industry stuff and then that became a thing that was like well if i'm going to talk about this in universities i don't want it don't, don't want it just to be spin i don't want this to be you know, me just bigging myself up and going, yeah, I'm hugely successful, like I would if I was talking to a magazine. And so I started to kind of get a bit more serious about that from a 
from a sort of research point of view. And eventually I did a talk at Leeds, what was then Leeds Metropolitan University and became Leeds Beckett. And they said, do you want to do a PhD? And I didn't even really kind of clock what that was or what that entailed at the time and said, yeah. And about four or five years later, I started one and I'm, and I'm meant to be, I meant to have handed that in in October, but but this year's bombshell was that I was diagnosed with cancer back in June, in July, and so everything got put on hold. So um, as it is, I'm kind of I've finished chemo and I'm seem to be doing all right. So I, I, maybe I'll restart it again quite soon. But yeah, so I've, I've kind of done seven years of a part time PhD. So the, so all of it came out of playing, but playing then led to talking about playing, and talking about playing led to researching the talking bit, so that there's a connection there like it wasn't like it wasn't like I had these three completely separate you know I was wasn't writing for Cajun Avery Birds or you know some kind of sort of air duct magazine as a as I was a jobbing journalist it was that being a player became a thing that I was fairly good at writing about wow there's so much there in one sentence we could actually <laughs> we could just spray off and finish the entire and I was actually going to ask you a question straight away about Bandcamp but I think we need to we need to pick into something of, of what you've just said so you it's a it's a literally a a chance kind of I can do a bit of that, let me have a go kind of thing that gets you into the into the writing. Well everything has been that all the way along. Like playing solo happened because I was playing I did a gig with her. I had a quartet. Actually for for um, back going back slightly, for a few years I was basically following Nick Beggs into gigs. So Nick you know, Kajagoo and mm. sessions and whatnot. Mm. He was my childhood hero and I wrote to him when I was at college and I met him and we became friends. And um, I replaced him in this this quartet or at least kind of subbed for him. I can't remember if I was meant to replace him or not, but I don't think he, I don't know if he played with them again. But it was a, 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 a lineup of a flamenco guitar, tabla, electric violin and bass. Or it, he'd been playing Chapman Stick in it. So I replaced Nick in this band and we had a gig and the promoter at the gig came up, up to me afterwards and said, that was great. Have you got a solo set? And I just lied and said, yeah, yeah, loads. I play all the time. I'd done, I'd done this one tune in the gig, which I'd written for the gig. It was just like, oh, you have to have a solo spot. So I'd done this thing. And he went, yeah, have you got a whole set? And I just went, yeah, of course. And had a gig booked. And in between, in between that gig and the, the, the gig with Ragatal, which was that quartet and the solo gig, I was on tour with Howard Jones, again, depping for Nick Beggs. So I didn't even have time to kind of work a thing out. So even the fact that what I do is largely improvised was, was was me going, oh, fuck, how do I actually get 40 minutes with the music out of this? All I've got is the things that I've been doing with my students, which was like, you know, I'm looping chord progressions for them to play over. And so I, um, yeah, it, sort of, it just it became a thing. And, and, I, and because we were sort of, you know, nascent days of the internet, really, and certainly for music online, and I had a, I had a reasonable presence because as a journalist, that kind of gave me a huge amount of social capital in those early mm-hmm. days. And so I had quite a web presence. So when I started saying, oh, I've just done this solo gig, people were like, oh, that's amazing. I, I had a bloke who flew from Italy to see that first gig. It was at the Troubadour in Earl's Court. <laughs> I was probably hugely disappointed. He might still have a vendetta against me. They might, I might at some point find there's like hate sites for me in Italian that I've just ne- never discovered. There's a, whole, there's a whole tribe of people in Italy who think I'm an asshole because of this one bloke. But, but he, came, he came over to the gig at the Troubadour. You know, so it was kind of a big deal at the time. And I did such a good job of talking about that that my session career went down the shitter. It was just like, like people stopped hiring me because they were like, oh, you play at the wrong end of the neck. It's just, they, they basically talked about the way Jason does normally. Um, then it was just, <laughs> but that was, it was a real thing. You know, I just, people, the phone stopped ringing for a while. I, I did, I did some session stuff. I had a student who was a hip hop producer. So I played on some tracks for him. 
and I had a few people that I'd been playing with before and was doing some jazz stuff. But but basically what had been the beginnings of a very successful session career just went <laughs> and caved in because I was playing solo. And that like as a bass player, playing solo in the late 90s was like telling somebody you made your own shoes. They were like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? Like, who does that? It's like, look, is it, is it good? Do, do people hate you? Like, is that, could you just not find a band? I said, like, no, no, I want to do this. This is a choice. This is not, I'm not an outcast. This is not, you know, I've not been exiled on the Isle of Patmos. This is, this is me actually choosing to do this. And, um, and, but it was, it was seen as a, because there wasn't anybody doing it at the time. You know, it was really, you know, there were, there were people who did it as a, as a feature spot in gigs. Like it was the thing that, you know, the sort of Stu Ham and the Joe Satriani gig yeah, thing. Yeah. But there weren't many people who went. This is this isn't just kind of clowning and entertainment. This is this is art. There was this, which was my pretension at the time. It was like no, I'm actually doing this. I mean, there were people. I suppose there were more people doing it with upright bass than there were with electric. But it was, it was pretty unusual. And I I had some remarkable encouragement from because and this is the lovely thing about about talking again about the connection between being a journalist and being a player was that I got to meet all of my heroes. So I met you know in the UK I met Danny Thompson and Danny Thompson was like mate, what you're doing is fantastic. You need to do more of this. This is great. And Mo Foster, whose first comment was, when I played him my first album, he went, you know the first chord's out of tune, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks, <laughs> Mo. But then he went on and said, no, no, what, what you're doing is great. And he was hugely, hugely encouraging. So I had, I had these elder statesmen, these people I'd looked up to all my life, saying, get in there. So, uh, you know, when, when some dickhead on the internet says, you shouldn't be doing that with the bass, you've got him in one ear, and in the other ear, I've got, Danny Thompson and Jimmy Haslip and, and 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 Mo Foster and Victor Wooten and people going, this is really great. And it was like, okay, I think I can, I think I can deal with, with I can listen to these voices and ignore Mr. Anonymous over here. So it it, it kind of the, the journalism thing gave me a door to meet those people without hanging around after gigs and asking for autographs. Mm. I got to sit down with them and actually pick their brains and and some of those people were just people I, I interviewed and, and that was the end of it. And but other ones became friends and became people I toured with and recorded with because you know, I'm quite good at what I do. It was, you know, it's like there, were, there was, and it wasn't, it wasn't that I was, you know, I didn't have budgets and things. It was just the ones who liked what I did went, yeah, let's do a thing together. And, uh, and that, that felt, I mean, that, that was wild. I mean, at the time, you know, like as a, as a, someone in their late twenties or, or mid twenties, suddenly collaborating with these people who had been my heroes for so long was just lunacy. You know? um, so when you were doing these gigs yeah, and you starting off as a solo bass player, when did you decide to sit down and do them? Okay, that's a bloody good question. Because, so, I think it's more... So, I sat I sat right from the start. I mean, so, the, the Troubadour is a tiny little venue. So, that first gig, like, it would have felt weird, I think, if I was stood up there, like, doing what I was doing. But the main problem was, I, I all the way along, I'd had two expression pedals. So, I'd one was a volume pedal that, as a bass player, I've always... Um, I've always loved to control the envelope of the sound. I've always loved that. It's, it's almost like, it's like kind of, a, it's probably a Jeff Beck thing, actually, even though he does it with his finger. But it's that, it's that ability to control the shape mm. of the note with a volume control thing was a big thing. So I, I permanently have a foot on the volume pedal. But I always wanted an expression pedal for either wah-wah or pitch or something as well. So when you've got two feet on expression pedals, you can't stand up unless yeah. you're going to wobble around <laughs> like some, you know, like some <laughs> bloody human weeble. Like it would be pretty fucking weird to do that. So, so I didn't. So I, I, you know, I sat down, and, and but there was a point at which I thought maybe I should do a version of this where I stand up. Maybe there should be, a, or at least a bit of the gig where I get up and kind of, you know, rock out a bit. But it just did. It never really worked. And I and I and I was finding myself with audiences that were quite happy to sit down and venues. But I definitely found, 
uh, this, this is why it's such a good question, Jace, is that, is that when I play to a standing up audience, they don't give a shit. Like they, they just don't want to listen. And so when I did my, my big break, which I probably will probably get into at some point on this, because it was almost exactly, to, it finished, this tour finished 20 years ago, two days ago. So like the 20th of November was the, was the last day of this tour. I was opening for Level 42 um, on their first greatest hits tour which was an extraordinary thing to get to do as a 29 year old, you know, it was just, it was completely nuts. Um, uh, but I found that the gigs were, there was a standing audience. So Norwich Union, uh, Ipswich, maybe there was, there was like, there were like three on the, at the 24 or 25 dates on the tour, there, was, there were three standing audiences and they just didn't want to listen. And I was like, okay, no more standing audiences. I just need to remember to ask if, the, if I get booked to say, is your audience sitting down? And they're like, no, I go, well, then I'm not playing, you know, and, and I, and I just had to realize that I just, it just wasn't worth me doing. And that, because if I did it, people would just wander towards the bar. It, what I do takes too much concentration for a standing audience. I probably wouldn't want to stand up and listen to it either. You know, it'd be weird. It'd be like, you know, going to a chamber music gig and listening to it. Cause it's, cause it's not, I, I, what I do is it's not particularly high energy. It's got a bit more kind of, I guess, sort of down tempo hip hop energy since I started playing drummy, drummy things. This is not you playing solo bass, bass, couple of pedals into an amp, is it? And no, that's it. No, no, no. So I've got. So I have. So the 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 the, the setup. I mean, uh, right from the start, my original setup was a Lexicon MPXG2, which at the time was probably the most fancy guitar preamp you could buy. I never. I've pretty much never used bass specific kit. Actually, before that, I had a, a one of that. Do you remember? ART, the, the, the night mm-hmm. bass, that pink thing that they had. I had one mm-hmm. of those when I was playing bass. Bass, I had one of those. And that was bright pink and suitably camp for someone like me, which was great. Um, but I, but when, I started, when I started playing solo, I was using the Lexicon uh, MPXG2, which was mind-blowing. But, it, but yeah, so I've, I've always been into kind of manipulating the sound to the point where it sounds completely unlike a bass. So rather than... And, and, and I've gone through a succession of amps trying to get as far away from sounding like a normal bass amp as possible, largely because bass amps roll off at sort of eight or nine K. And I've often got a bunch of shimmer reverb stuff going on. That's kind of way, way above that. So I kind of, I, my current, my, my new rig is these trick fish amps that you can see, but that you, well, you obviously listeners can't see, but you can see behind me, um, which are, I mean, I, I use it as a, I use it as studio monitors. I've got, I've got a pair of fairly, admittedly fairly cheap Yamaha studio monitors here that don't sound as good as those do for just playing music through. So I'm always looking at full range. And so when I turn up to a gig, if they go, oh, we've got this Fender combo for you, I'm like, I'll just go through the PA, thanks. Yeah. Um, it's just, so, so yeah, so it's, it's that. But I also do play, so since 2015, I, in 2015, I started playing, using a, a Keith McMillan controller to play drum parts and also piano. Like I don't, I don't use a keyboard controller. I use a, an NPC style grid controller to play piano because then I can map mm-hmm. it to a key. And that means that, that it, you know, I, I can't play wrong notes, which is helpful because I'm rubbish at piano. <laughs> <laughs> so it just it basically blocks out everything that could go wrong. Um, so, I, so I use that as well. And, and that came about through, I was working with, actually a friend who's in Birmingham on Thursday, Divinity Rocks, who mm. was at the time was Beyonce's bass player and is now a solo, Grammy-nominated solo artist. Extraordinary, extraordinary woman. Bass player, singer, MC, writer, producer, MD, and we would we had this we we have this sort of erstwhile duo project that we do every now and again. But we were playing, and we were recording in my not this room but a smaller studio in the previous house I lived in, 
And we were recording and she just pulled out a keyboard in the middle, like the virtual tape was rolling and we were doing this thing. And she was like, oh, and just pulled the keyboard out of her bag, plugged it in, mapped some drum program to it and started playing drums over what we were doing. Like it wasn't even a thing that we planned to do. I was like, I need to do that shit. That's kind of clever. Like that. she's, she's really got something going going here. And so afterwards, I, I, have a, I have a good relationship with Keith McMillan. So I was able to kind of send them a note and say, can I try the Cuneo? And that, so, but that for me was like 15 years of playing just bass. Like, like it was heavily processed, like we're saying, but it was, but it, but my only instrument was a bass. And if I wanted percussion, I banged on the bass in a sort of quasi John Gom sort of way. Um, uh, and, uh, and so all of a sudden I was actually using kind of drum sounds and piano sounds and things, which I thought I was going to get a load of pushback from my audience, but they didn't give a shit because they were just like, yeah, just make nice music. Like we don't, this isn't a gimmick. Like that. What's really interesting about that is, so I've got a friend called Rachel Collier, and she's a... She's a genius. She is, she is, and she's an Ableton uh, person. She does lots of very, 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 very amazing kind of on-the-fly performance-based stuff and messes about with sounds, and she's very much into, you know, lots of tweaking on the go and what she can create. And in that part of the world, in that kind of keys part of the world, Mm. that's very much a thing. You can get quite a lot, there's lots of artists do that. But to find, and you'll you'll get a, a lot of guitar players and bass players who will do a lot of loop. We'll do we'll do a lot mm-hmm. of build on a loop, and that's kind of normal. But to get the crossover that you're talking about is fairly unique, and there's no reason why it should be. Every now and again, I dig into YouTube because I want I don't want to be unique. I want other people I can steal ideas from. Mm. Like being out on your own doing a thing like this is a bit annoying because you kind of I I don't I've never needed to do that. I want to make music that's good, whether whether it's similar to what someone else does, does or not is, is of no consequence at all. Um, and so I, I often go, go around looking and I, and I can find a lot of really great solo bass inspiration. There's a, there's a guy from Sweden called Bjorn Mayer, who I find hugely inspiring and a, and a Canadian bass player called Rich, uh, Rich Brown, Michael Manring, who was my original hero and, and a long time collaborator. So there are people I can go to for solo bass inspiration and there are people I can go to for beat inspiration. So, I mean, Rachel, it's amazing that you mentioned that. I think she's a genius and is a huge huge inspiration um but the thing that rachel does is that everything she does is mapped to the grid so my thing is because i'm using loopers and and sampled sounds rather than like a uh i don't i'm not using a sequencer at all there's no sequencer involved at all so everything is wonky as fuck like everything everything sounds like i'm hammered that's kind of the idea um and and so there is a school of hip-hop that's like that but again it's not it's not really a live performance thing that people who are doing that are doing it as producers. It's sort of post Jay Diller kind of the '90s hip hop change thing that happened. There's a bunch of producers that do that. There are very few people who do that in the way that I do and do it live. Most of them are people I've talked. The ones who've done it, the ones who've gone, actually, I quite like what you do. Can you show me how to do, how to do that? So yeah, so you're right. I mean, it is. It's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a, a niche within a niche, but it's one that there aren't many people that occupy. And funnily enough, I'm less surprised that you're doing it as a bass player than if you were doing it as a guitar player. I still think that's the bit that really has not been... That I, I can't think of anybody that's gone down that particular route yet. Well, I think part of the obvious reason for that is that they would have to work out what to do about bass. Yeah, yeah. Because, no, I was just about to say that. You, you, yeah. you, you join the two together, don't you? Because I'm a rhythm section. That's the thing. So, so that, that I have this sort of... this At the bottom of it, I'm playing drums, but I'm also playing bass as a bass instrument. Yeah. And then I'm then playing melody and, and spacey shit and whatnot, all that kind of other things. So so when I do the beat driven stuff, it's it, it's it, it, I just basically become the whole rhythm section. So yeah. bass lends itself to this particular, but bass also lends itself to looping, because it 
like guitar is designed to be full range. Like it's like you strum it, it's particularly an acoustic guitar. Like when I hear acoustic guitar players loop, it's like it'd be like somebody trying to loop a piano. You'd be like, "Why? What? You more layers of piano? This is too much already." It like, tends to be more percussive, doesn't it, than 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 chordal? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, exactly. So you get, I mean, you get, you know, the the, the Katie Tunstall thing, which absolutely mm. changed the game. That for me, that was great because yeah. I had to stop. I I stopped having to explain what I was doing because people went, "Oh, it's that Katie Tunstall thing," and I went, "Yeah, absolutely." And she and I probably started looping about the same time, sometime in the mid nineties. She got her. Akai Headrush, another huge inspiration. It's amazing actually how many how many women there are who do this and do it well. Like her, Imogen Heap and Rachel being kind of, I guess, the three most obvious. But Zoe Keating, who's a cellist in the States, who does a similar thing with, with cello and she does it all in Ableton. So her stuff is all kind of more kind of solidly on the grid and in time. And I think that, I think my messing with time is probably the most radical and also most annoying bit about what I do for people listening to it is that, that, I think there are people who are just like, is it that you can't play drums? Is that what's going on here? Are you just rubbish? <laughs> and it's like, no, no, it's intentional. And they're like, really? You you meant to do that? Like, can you explain to me why? I don't get it. And 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 this we'll we'll, we'll loop back around to this thing if we do talk about Bandcamp because I have the luxury of having an audience who will come and ask me that question and then not not send me death threats as a result. They actually kind of go, yeah. I don't get this. Can you talk to me about it? Which is yeah, yeah an amazing thing to have. The other thing that's interesting there, though, is that Ableton is moving more in the direction of being less mapped to the grid, to mm-hmm. use your phraseology, because this whole follow thing that they're doing now is is far more about locking Ableton to the groove rather than the other way yeah, around. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, the, it, took, it definitely took Ableton 10 versions to catch up. So Ableton 10 yeah. finally got to the point where they... where And, and like, even things like having the looper, so you can actually have it, like independent of all the clocking like mm. it still requires a degree in programming to get it to do it but you can um the, the only reason why i know anything about this and jason's already glazed over as to how i know this much about <laughs> i am Ableton. frankly stunned that right. you dropped this bit of information in right okay i'll tell you for why because it's going to come back to my favorite subject right i'm Marillion. going to bring i'm going to bring it back around to marillion and the reason being that oh. Marillion have been using Ableton on the last tour oh, really? to trigger samples. And what they've been doing is, and the way it works, is that you put a microphone on the drum kit and Ableton takes its feed from, from the drums. The drums are therefore not playing in time and Ableton moves around. And it allows yeah. a band like Marillion to have things like odd samples, bits of backing vocals, fall at the right time but get the feel of a band playing because ultimately the drummer is still effectively creating the tempo I'd, I'd love to know so i so i i recorded a few years back i recorded a thing which still hasn't come out but may at some point because it's there's some fun stuff in there i recorded a session with mark kelly and roy dodds who was the drummer right. in fairground attraction so it was like i was the only member of the band who hadn't had a number one hit in the 80s but i had bought both of theirs so that was good um, <laughs> <laughs> um so we had neither of them have had one since we did this just yes, quite, but we did this trio thing, and and that was kind of fun. But but I remember part of the most what was most fascinating about that was talking to Mark about Marillion's creative process, and I imagine that it generates an awful lot of usable stuff that they could actually import as tracks yeah. that that just from their because they own the studio, yeah, so yeah. their demo process is also the same as their recording process. So the idea that they could have those things and have them so that and then having those clocked to the drums live, so they can still have some sort of mobility of arrangement within that so they're not rigidly playing to adapt or whatever that is that the kids use these days um that sounds amazing that sounds really interesting i'd love to actually i haven't i haven't chatted to mark in a while i'd love to talk to him about how they're doing that 
But what's interesting about that whole journey for a band like theirs is that's a band that went from playing live to then playing to a click to now moving out to having all the advantages of yep. playing with a click but with a, a, a much freer mm. tempo experience. Yeah. So it's actually quite an interesting progression towards something that is ultimately what you want, which is a band playing free but being able to actually have all the embellishments that, that a band like Marillion needs. Well, I think, I think for me that's kind of where technology gets interesting of any kind. Yes, I agree. Is, is, is when it stops being about either doing kind of space age stuff, like the sort of 80s synth thing where it was just like, let, 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 let's, let's be the 1960s version of what the 1980s is meant to be. Like it all got, got a bit lost in space for a while. Um, um, and, then, and then we got heavily into trying to copy analog sounds. So there's the whole, you know, the, the origins of the Kemper and Axe FX thing. And, yeah, and, all the and, you know, and, and, that, and that makes life easy. I mean, you know, studio recording now is so much easier than it ever was because of that. But it all gets much more interesting when you start to to go. Okay, now what can we do that goes beyond that? How can we, what what is it that, in the words of you two, is even better than the real thing? What 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 happens when we take these take these tracks and then are, they're able to follow a live drummer? What happens when we can morph multiple things together so we can create instruments that couldn't exist in reality? I, had a, I wrote a, a a novel, in fact, almost exactly. 13 years ago today, because uh, uh, I know that because it was, I wrote it in the run. Do you only ever work in November? It was NaNoWriMo, which is this, NaNoWriMo, which is this sort of national novel writing month. But it was also the month leading up to my son being born and it's his right. birthday next week. So I know it was exactly 13 years ago. But one of my characters in that was a drummer and he'd, he manipulated all of his drum sounds to, to, ma- to match what he thought drums would sound like in space under zero gravity. And, and and I have no idea what that would sound like, but that's the kind of thing that I've I've always found really interesting with with processing and modelling is like how can we make this sound different? So for me as a bass player, it was always like how do I make this sound like other things, but also not just like a copy of those other things, but a better version of those things. Like like so I do, and this this is I I, I often play slide on a ba- on a bass, but it's like I don't want it to be a gimmick. I don't want it to be like oh look at that bass player playing slide. I want it to be a thing where people go, wow that slide sounds amazing. Where did that come from? That was a bass player, really? Like, it's just like, and so, I mean, technique-wise, I was, I, I nicked it all from BJ Cole, who I was playing with in the, in the mid-noughties. BJ lived down the corner, and we used to play together often, like kind of a couple of times a week. And we, we recorded and gigged a lot. And so when I hold a slide, this is, a, this is, this is really useful doing visual stuff on, a, on an audio podcast, but there we go. I kind of hold it, rather than sticking it on my finger and playing like that, like moving it horizontally, I'm going to do the... I'm going to do the description of the of the image thing that you get on the internet. <laughs> Steve is holding a slide and moving his hand suggestively from side to side, um, and then. But actually, I, I hold it much more like a like a tone bar for a, yeah, laying pe- my bass on my lap. Start, a pedal steel slide, a start, because it gets a better tone. And so, it, the, the the upshot is that it looks much more like I'm being like just trying to be weird, like laying my bass on my lap. But I do it because it sounds amazing. Um, and so things like that were like. Because and then the processing side of it was like, okay, how do I get this to sound not like a pedal steel, but like a really great version of of the function that a pedal steel plays in a bat? Like, how do I how do I move in that direction? But rather than aping it, see if I can go beyond it with what I've got. And that that's always been a kind of source of great excitement. And and the technology has finally caught up. Because I remember when like when the pod came out, when the the, the original Line Six pod, mm. it was like this sounds like. Really good guitar played back through a shit radio. 
It was like, you know, that, that, that you could hear what it was meant to be. You go, yeah, that sounds like, that does sound like a Fender Twin, but it sounds like a Fender Twin on the radio. Like it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound full range. It sounded so narrow. And it was, and those early modeling things were like, they were pointing towards something that was really good, but they weren't something really good. So they, they needed to exist for us to get to where we are now. But there was a lot of that stuff that sounded super static. And it wasn't until like two notes came along and started doing their cabinet and amp modeling. And it was like, okay, now we're into some seriously clever shit. Mm-hmm. Like, but then, and then that allows you to have, you know, eight amps situated across the stereo field in weird ways. So you start to do things that just physically, unless you're Pink Floyd, you can't do. Nobody has the physical space to do it. So that, that in terms of opening up options is really, really exciting. I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't worry about gimmicks. Um, I watched Billy Sheehan play a bass with a Makita drill. Don't, don't, don't worry about gimmicks. No, no. Well, that was the thing. I mean, and that was the thing with, with, with when Katie Tunstall came along, people were like, oh, aren't you, aren't you sad she's taking your gimmick? And, and, and younger people said it about Ed Sheeran. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I, this was never my gimmick. This was a way of making music. This was a way of me hearing in my head lots and lots of me because I'm a supreme narcissist. <laughs> and, then, and then going, how do I make that happen without training a bunch of tiny people to play like me? Like, what, what, what's going on? And it was like, well, looping was the way of doing it. But then once I did that, it was like, okay, now how do I stop this from being a ta-da party trick? Like, what does it make possible in terms of, like, what does that repetition allow me to do? Like, what, 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 are, the, what are the psychoacoustic properties of music that repeats that I can actually use and manipulate without it being house music? Because I wasn't interested in doing things that were kind of, you know, banging on the beat in, in, in 120 BPM. I was like, and so that's the ongoing exploration. It's like, it's like, and, and there are certain tracks through the kind of the, through the 120 albums of shit that I've released where I feel like I've got the closest to it being the, the, the to the looping being completely transparent. I had one of my long-term, long-term listeners uh, was commenting a while back on Twitter. He was saying, he says, I don't know if you've started using less looping or if I just notice it less. And I was like, yes, brilliant. Finally. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's even to the people who know what I do, it's becoming obscured to them how much of it is looped because I'm getting to the point where that that repetition is hidden in, a, in, the, in the arrangement. And that feels like, you know, and that's that's 20 years in. Like, it's you know, this is not a short-term project. This is not a, if I buy a loop head, I can show people how clever I am. So when you started, I mean, I don't know when you started playing the bass, some point in the 80s? Yeah, 86, probably. Christmas 86. 86. Yeah. Were you frustrated in the 80s that you couldn't make the sounds in your head or did the sounds in your head expand yeah as the technology became available for you to make them yeah so in the 80s and originally my inspirations to play bass were kurt smith uh nick beggs and john taylor because they had the best hair in their relative bands that was the main reason was like I was thirteen. What the fuck do I know about anything? Like I was like I just want I want to be I want to be the good looking one in the band. Um, but Fairly also, low bar in Kajigugu for hair though, wasn't it? Well, absolutely. Well, it was, well it was, you know, he looked like a, some sort of exotic chicken, didn't he? It was like it was, it was like well, it was great. I've always wondered what kind of eggs Nick Beggs lays. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you know, and then I, but then I remember watching a, a Mark King, Mark a Level Forty Two were doing a gear giveaway on like Saturday Superstore or Swap Shop or something. And all of them had like little little keyboards and little guitars. And then Mark King had this big stack and this massive bass and did his solo. And it was like, yeah, that's the one to play. So my inspirations were pretty much similar to everybody else's. But then like so many other people coming of age at that, towards the end of the 80s, John Peel changed my life. That I kind of, and I, and I then wanted to be in the Jesus and Mary Chain or the Pixies or 
Napalm Death or something like that. Like I, there was my, but it was still normal bass playing until I heard um, through reading guitar magazines, I started to, to to check out people like Jaco Pistorius and Stanley Clark and Stuart Hamm and and was like, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds like fun. That sounds like a really that sounds like a mad way to play things. I was in a New Orleans jazz band. Like I, in, I lived, grew up in Berwick on Tweed. My my teen years were in Berwick on Tweed. And so the only like regular gigging band in the town was a New Orleans band. So I was playing music from the twenties on electric bass, but the, the the trombone player would slip me contraband. He would kind of go, go Steve, I've got a tape for you, and like because the trumpet player would get really upset if we were we were talking about things that weren't from the twenties. So he would bring these in, and he did like his he he did me a tape copy of Hegira by Joni Mitchell, and his own kind of best of weather report on the other side, and that was like mind blowing. And then I and I bought. Pat Metheny's first album with Jacko on it. And so there were things like that that were like, I didn't play Fretless for another 10 years after that, but there was this sense that bass could be more than just the low notes or even the flashy, because I was a huge Chris Squire fan as well. I was a massive Yes fan. And so bass was like super prominent in that, but it was still bass. It was it was flash bass rather than bass as all these other things. Mm. And uh, um, and so, but then listening to Stanley Clark and Jacko, stylistically, it wasn't my thing. It was all far too far too confident like it, it was all far too sure of itself because because for my my own taste lent more towards the cure and talk talk and kind of that sort of quite fragile new wavy stuff so so mm. a lot of what i ended up doing was trying to do that on a bass it was like how do i how do i play music that has more questions than answers but sits on a on a on, a, on an instrument that is often used to play you know it's, it's played by people who wear vest tops like like what the fuck am i doing with this this is this is like muscular like you know, like, like those all those traditional videos that we bought in the eighties and nineties that were like, yeah, I'm going to show you how to slap super fast, and it was a guy with a mustache and a, yeah. and it's like, this is horrible. And so Face I was porn. So so I was like, I was I was inspired by the potential, but but just repulsed by the aesthetics of it. Like it was like, this is not good. This is not what I want to do. And so by the time I got into playing solo. It was like I'd managed to sort through an awful lot of what that wanted to be, what I, what that wanted to be. So there's bits of sort of ECM and 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 Wyndham Hill and that sort of. There is a sort of this sort of new instrumental thing that happened through the 80s and 90s that's in there, but it's definitely not fusion at all. Like it doesn't. I didn't go into that that space where it was like like. The, so the Jacko thing like began and end, ended with his work with Joni Mitchell in terms of being an influence. Like the Weather Report stuff and his solo stuff was never there. Like it was just I just I didn't ever want technique to be that close to the surface it was like that was a way of making sound it wasn't a thing it, it wasn't an end in itself and so it's not you know it's not that that's not okay for other people to do and there were people who do that that i enjoyed listening to i just never wanted to do that it didn't tell the story i needed to tell against the odds you've actually turned this into a long-term career <laughs> yeah which is i i genuinely find utterly fascinating <laughs> that that it that solo bass can become a career i think in that sense it's a bit like saying lady gaga can become a career because it's like well how many of them are there because there aren't there aren't that many people doing what i do but also i did have i always had a portfolio career so as i was saying at the beginning that the playing was the center of the wheel but that allowed me to do all these other things and so and i think my life was more interesting than it would have been if i'd been on the road the friends of mine who you know i have, I have american friends there's an american bass player i know called seth horan who at one point in the mid noughties didn't have a house because he was permanently on the road. He's a singer songwriter who plays bass. So kind of the vocal thing gave it a bit more of a sort of coffee shop credibility that, that I wouldn't have really had. But 
but he was just going out with a bass and, and a mic and, and playing playing like 300 shows a year. And I was like, I was both impressed and appalled by that. Like I was impressed that he was able to do it, but I was also like, I'm really glad I teach and write and get to be at home with my cats and my partner. And it was like, I just, I just think that that would be an incredibly lonely life. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I, you, yeah, you. So, you, which is why people who do that end up often very odd indeed. You know, the, the, there are a lot of the musicians who tour that much and at any level who become really strange people because you live in this weird bubble. And sometimes it's the the people who tour on their own. I've got a bunch of friends who do this. And they become inadvertently incredibly demanding because they're so used to trying to not, trying to minimize their organization by offloading it onto their friends. So I'll have friends who come to London and go, can I stay at your house for the next five nights? And can you pick me up at Heathrow? And it's like, no, what the hell? Like, what, are you, what are you asking me? And it's because if I do that, then that A, saves them 400 quid or whatever, and B, removes all of this admin. And so they're not, it's not that they're, they're, they're not, wanting to impose themselves they're just wanting to get rid of all of the stress that that, that is their life 48 weeks of the year and i i looked at that at the time and, and there was a time when i probably could have done that i could have probably gone down that route and i just went hell no <laughs> i don't want to do that i'd much rather teach and write and do all this other stuff because i just needed to be like i've said i've said and I, I don't know I, probably for about the last 15 years i've said that the one of the overarching themes of what I've tried to do as a musician is that I want to make music that's important without pretending that I'm special. And if you're touring like that, you have to believe that you are special because you're asking so much of the people that are helping to make it happen. And I've always been like, no, I think the music I make is really, I, I do think there's something in it. I'm not an idiot. You know, I wouldn't keep doing it if I didn't. And 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 the fact, as you point out, Jason, the fact that I've been doing it for 22 years suggests that, you know, there's there's, there's an alarming longevity to that. Um, but it, but it, I did, I never wanted to be in a situation where, where I had to pretend that somehow I had some greater level of significance in all in, in the scheme of things than than I actually do. I, I'm never comfortable with that, and I think most artists go through the stage of being uncomfortable with it and then get comfortable with it. And I was like, I don't want it because when they do, when I meet people who are comfortable with that, they're really fucking weird to be around. You've talked about how the technology is really important to what you do and you've developed and grown with the technology as it's become available but you've also kind of steered your your distribution of your music in into digital ways as well and you know we'll talk about spotify but i've never met anybody who's a bigger advocate of bandcamp <laughs> in my entire life <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it just it just it just answered all the questions. So before Mancamp, I had my own hand rolled web shop where I was selling downloads from a from from I was hosting the files myself and selling them, and that's a massive ball. Like I always find it mad when people say, "I'm just going to do my own downloads." I'm like, "On you go, see how hard it is. It's going to cost you a hell of a lot more than the ten percent that Bandcamp are going to take, and the amount of time it's going to take you to administrate that, and what's going to happen when your server goes down. Like you have no idea how hard that is, and especially if you're wanting to to host." multiple file formats like you can get off Bandcamp and, and then run a streaming app. Fuck off. That's ridiculous. You can't do that. Like when people claim they're going to like, like, you know, I know literally one person who's actually built an app like that successfully. Um, and you know, and he's done an amazing job of it, but it's like, again, he's a unicorn. Um, so, 
for me, Bandcamp answered all the problems that I was having in the mid eighties to do with uh, sales, control, pricing, branding. Like it was just everything. It was like, and it was based on uh, the, their inspiration for it was a book, uh, an ebook written by a friend of mine, a guy called Andrew Dubber, who wrote a book about basically ten things you need to know about music on the internet or something like that. And it became the guiding principle behind behind Bandcamp. And so it just came from a really good place. And so for me. Like I gradually moved everything over there because like the, the distributed thing was like, it just wasn't working for me. Like the fact that I would sell things on, on iTunes and I wouldn't know who I'd sold it to. And about six months later, I'd get paid for it. And every now and again, a review would pop up, but I didn't know who they were. And I wanted to ask them what they were, how and why I wanted to talk to them. I want, I want to be in some kind of, or I want the potential to be there to, to have friendships, either kind of you know or, or at least a, a relationship based on appreciation with the people who, who like what I do and so Bandcamp enabled me to do that so when they started so the 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 amazing thing for me is their subscription service which I consulted on so three or four years before they actually introduced it I met with the CEO of Bandcamp with Ethan Diamond and he and I started to meet once a year when I was in California and he'd go what do you want the site to do now and I'd come up with a bunch of stuff and some of it would end up on the site and some of it was things they were already doing. But the subscription service I had quite a big input into. And so when they launched that in 2015, I got me and three other artists or two other artists got to, to trial it for a year before it was thrown open to the public. So I was one of the you know three out of, of half a million artists on Bandcamp who got to actually do that thing for a year and, and got to talk, about, to talk to them about what I needed from it. And so for me, that was great because then I didn't have to promote each individual album. I was far too prolific to do that. That if you send a record to a, to a magazine or a radio station, that's going to go on a pile and it might not get played for two months. Like it might, you, you've got, you have to have this really long lead time. And I don't make a record and then go, six months from now, it's going to be released. So now I can do promo and I can send it to people and I can, I'm not doing that at all. Six months from now, I've released four other albums. That, that, one, <laughs> that one's gone. It's like, like and, and, and so I needed a way, an economic way of doing that where I wasn't trying to make a case for every album to a new audience to say, you need to give me money for this. I wanted to go to be a thing, but I also didn't want to have to do a Kickstarter for every project either, because that takes ages. So the, the ongoing thing of saying, if you give me 30 quid a year, which is what it is now, I will send you as much music as I can make that is great. Like, I'm not going to send you a bunch of bullshit. It's not going to be demos. It's not going to be me, you know, recording things on a Walkman or whatever. Um, I, I, because everything I do is recorded at, at studio quality because my studio is my library. So anything I make that is good, and as an improviser, there's a lot of that, I will release and you can have, and then we can talk about it. And I will post videos and explain what I'm doing. And through the lockdown, I was doing Zoom calls with my subscribers. And so we were kind of hanging out every Friday night and just chatting. And, um, and it just became a community into which I could, I could insert music. So the music was, the, was the, the social object at the heart of it, but the conversation was the thing that mattered. Because I got to understand what I did better through people talking to me about it. So in a sense, the albums became episodic. They stopped being a product and became like a podcast. It was absolutely like that, that each one was an episode. And so mm. each one, I would listen to what they'd said and then I'd go, oh, I kind of understand a bit more about what I'm trying to do here. Let's try that here. Or mm. I'd go... I'm in lockdown. Let's 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 make music that's about being feeling confined, or let's make music that's about going out on big long bike rides, or as happened this year, let's make music that's about suddenly finding out I've got cancer. And, and I think that's really interesting that you've developed this community, then you get the bombshell news that actually you are quite sick, 
and then that community rally around you and and I've heard you say in the best worst possible taste that you know the best thing for your career was getting cancer yeah absolutely. which is um you know and I, well I've really enjoyed the fact that we've been able to laugh at something that is incredibly serious yeah yeah absolutely I mean, and, and that's the thing because because it was it because I have a mechanism for people to meaningfully uh financially support what I do in a way that doesn't there's no there's no one taking their bit there's no there's no there's, there's no kind of it's not like oh go and listen to me like like the, the whole thing that happened with Spotify when people were going if you put my record on overnight with the volume down I'll get paid like what a shitty cynical thing to have to do mm. to try and give someone you like 10p just send them some fucking money like don't don't be, don't be leaving your computer on overnight you'll spend more than that on the, the electricity to run your computer just send them some money. and But sticking a PayPal link on your website, again, it just feels a bit bleh. So when I said, look, look, I, I, when I got cancer, I was like, right, I can't gig. I can't teach. It was over the summer, so I wasn't going to be doing much teaching anyway, but I couldn't do any of my private teaching. I couldn't write. You know, it was, it was, it was a whole load of stuff that I couldn't do because I was in hospital with tubes in my arms pumping toxic chemicals into me. I said, but the bit of my career that is still going is that you can buy the music and it's there. And if you want to subscribe, you can. And... I would love it if you did. And and I will be posting updates there about what, what's going on. And if you wanna, you know, if you wanna support me. And because the bank app model is is always that there's the price and then it's like or more, people stepped up and shocked me at times with how generous they were. It was absolutely extraordinary. And so within a few days of me launching that, my wife was able to say, Okay, I can go part time and look after you. So she was able to step her job back. And like and there, there's no model for that with YouTube. There's no model for that with with Spotify like I've got friends who do really well out of both of those like it's not it's not that you can't make money on them like the straw man of there's no money on Spotify there is but but it's it's money at scale you need millions of of listens a year like I would to make what I make on 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 Bandcamp I would need something ridiculous like six million plays a year or something or six million active listeners I can't remember I did the calculation once but but it was like such an absurd amount, and then I thought, okay, what 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 scale of marketing campaign would be required for me to get to that point? It's like, well, that would cost more than I more than I would make anyway. So the thing with Bandcamp is that with a subscriber audience of about four hundred or so at the moment, I, you know, it it uh, it's not everything I live on. I as as you know, we teach together at, at BIM, so yeah. I still teach. I still I still write. I do music lessons online occasionally for Scott Space lessons. I haven't done anything for a while, but also for a site called Musical U. I do a monthly thing for them. You know, I've got, I've, and I teach privately as well. I've got a handful of private students, but I can be super picky about those because Bandcamp pays most of my salary for, for a year. There's something about, because, I mean, there's a bit of Patreon that's a little bit like this as well um, in terms of the fact that it gives you that connection with mm. um, with an with an audience and it actually... You don't need to go past a few hundred for it to actually be meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, which is which is really really important. But what I've found in doing this, um, the podcast that I do with with Steve H is 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 Patreon funded. That's that's how we keep that one. Go- that's how we keep that one going. Um, but there's a genuine. It's not just for the benefit of the creator or the artist because actually being able as somebody who appreciates 
what somebody creates or somebody does, being able to show that mm. in a meaningful way is also very healthy for the person who is actually um, consuming yeah. uh, what's being created. Now, I do it to a few people with podcasts because I don't want them to stop yeah. and because I really appreciate what they do. So I'm on both sides of this because I've also collected, bizarrely, I've collected some patrons of my own because of the stuff I do with Steve. Yeah, and it's just people wanting to say thanks. Yeah, just, exactly. Just, just I like what you do, and and the fact of the matter is, in the scheme of things, it's a it's a handcrafted cup of coffee a month or a couple of yeah, them. Yeah, it's yeah. not. Yeah. It's not. It's nothing more than that. But the the effect of what it can have on on the person, you know, in in your shoes. Um, is massive. The, it's the, absolutely massive. The encouragement is enormous as well. I mean, that's the thing that when somebody says, "I care about what you do enough to give you this," yeah, like that's a huge thing. And 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 again, because it's all visible. Like when when somebody subscribes to me, I get an email drop into my inbox that says, "Cha ching, such yeah. and such a person is just oh, capital." I can't remember what that. I can't remember what the particular weird word is that Bankup uses for subscribers. Um, but you know, there'll be something like that, and it's like they're excited about it. I'm excited about it, and I get this email, and I can then. You know, and sometimes it's people I know and I'll go, oh, great, that's thanks, I'll say hi. Sometimes they'll come and post about it on social media and talk about it. Um, but it's absolutely, I mean, because I'm a subscriber to a lot of other people. You know, I subscribe mm. to to a number of artists on Bandcamp. I have a, subscribed to a number of, of writers and whatnot on Patreon. Um, Patreon for me was a little, I think for the, the thing with Bandcamp is that because it's still focused on pristine audio, that that mm. for me as as a, as a musician, was like, I want this to be at the centre. There are still things I want them to change about it. I want, I want threading. I think Patreon works for things like podcasts very well. Yeah, yeah I, think it, I think it works for those kind of... I, I, I agree. I, I don't necessarily see it as a musical. But there are, um, but there are musicians who use it and, and kind of... Yeah. And, and, it, and it's sort of semi-successful. The thing, the thing that I haven't done intentionally is, like, is there are no extra tiers to what I do. Because I didn't want to go do a thing where it's like, oh, and here's a bit for the rich people. Like I, it's like, it's 30 quid a year and that's it. And 30 quid a year for normally this year is a bit low because, Hey, I've been ill. Um, but, but normally it's between 10 and 12 albums that I'll put out in a year. And so it's like that plus all the video plus all the other bits and pieces. There's a bunch of eBooks that you get, you get my novel, you get a book of me talking about pedals. There's the, the volume of stuff is massive that comes out. And, and so if you like what I do, then 30 quid a year is, is not a thing anybody needs to think about. But, there's a whole bunch of people who say, actually, this is worth more. So there are a couple who, at the end of each year, will just email me and go, is your PayPal address still the same? I just want to send you more money because it was worth more than that this year. So they're actually doing a kind of calculation. I don't know if they've actually got like a metric for it. I'd love to know. Um, <laughs> but, but I just think all of that is so healthy. Yeah, it really is. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, healthy in terms of, of on, a, on, a, on a kind of very two-dimensional level, but a more holistic thing it's Mm. just it's a really 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 good thing and i didn't get it until i was part way through doing the stuff with steve i didn't understand it and then when it dropped and it clicked it was like no this is a this is we've taken this back we've paired it back to what it should be yeah and i think i I think you know i think there are there are we're still in the state with music where where because it's still far easier to, to resell music that people already love than it is to to get them to listen to new things, you know. Yeah. That this is a model that is supporting a bunch of legacy artists in their dotage. That that's that's kind of predominantly in the same way that vinyl is. You know, we talked about the vinyl revolution. 
but actually the majority of vinyl that's sold is reissues. Um, that So we're still in a state where it's still tough to be a new artist. But the fact that, because I suppose I'm a legacy artist in that sense, that, that you know, a lot of the people that listen to me that are subscribers are people I've known for 20 years. They're people who've been part of my online communities as they've evolved and grown for 20 years. But I think, so, so I think we're still finding a place where people understand the value in new music and want to support it. I think there are still, there's still room for more development in that. But you're right. I, I think, can't... I think what's from, from just you're using your health analogy, for me, it's a circulation system, a circulatory system. And that money is now flowing in a much more kind of, uh, uh, meaningful way rather than just collecting around, around sociopath billionaires. Like it's not like Amazon, which is this big Hoover sucking money out of it or Google or Apple that we've suddenly got, I mean, Patreon, it's slightly less kind of, you know, their, their economics are a little bit more suspect, but, um, but the Bandcamp thing is great. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned at the beginning about the fact that they've been bought by Epic and a lot of people were really freaked out by that when a, game, when a multi-billion dollar games company bought their darling indie music thing. Um, but actually, it hasn't changed it. I've, I've even spoken to Ethan, the CEO, about it and, and he said, well, you know, we did it because we genuinely feel like this is the thing that gets us to allow us to, to keep doing what we do, only do it better. Um, that, and that... that you know, everybody I know in gaming was saying this is going to be a disaster. It hasn't happened yet. You know, they're doing okay. It may well, it may well go to shit. But at the moment, it's actually, it's just giving them the clout to do things better, which is great. So, um, I, you know, I, I have, I, I'm, I'm a huge, huge appreciator of, of Bandcamp. I'm not, I'm not under any illusion that, that they're a charity. But the way that their economics work, they, for them to do well, we have to do 10 times as well. So for them to make a thousand pounds off me, I have to make ten thousand pounds. That's pretty great. I can like I like those odds. I'm kind of happy with that. You know, like that's a good place to be. And and they've just gone through, they've just gone through the the, the billion dollar mark. They've paid out a billion dollars to artists. They went through that a couple of months back. That's extraordinary. Given how much how much of the global music market literally can't be because of licensing laws can't be on Bandcamp that for their bit of the music world to be able to dish out a billion dollars direct to artists and small labels is frankly breathtaking. I think yeah. that's probably a good place to end it, don't you, Anne? I, I do. I, I, and it's been absolutely fascinating. I must admit, I've really... Uh, I, mean, I didn't expect to go anywhere like where we've gone. <laughs> um, but, uh, but what a positive message. The music economy is full of doom and gloom. It's full of people talking about how bad things are. And I get why. But what I don't get is that the people who can do things differently still don't. They're still so terrified. They have Stockholm Syndrome, even though Stockholm Syndrome doesn't exist. Um, they have what we used to think of as Stockholm Syndrome. You know, this idea where they're just wedded to the, the evil bastards who are, who are making life difficult. It's like, there are ways of doing this differently. You just need to have the balls to jump and then have a conversation with your audience about it. You need to talk to people and give them the opportunity to support what you do. And if they don't, then maybe they don't care about you anyway. So, you know, you were kidding yourself in the first place. But otherwise, you can find that core audience that care and suddenly have, you know, and, and let go of, of, of the, the idea that you need to sell, you know, 100,000 copies of a thing or have, have half a million monthly listeners on Spotify to make it viable. No, no. Find the 300 people who give a shit about what you do and let them, let them fund you doing it because the world's far more interesting. Do you know what I can do as well as like a proper pro thing on a podcast? 
I can talk about how Steve records at home and this podcast is sponsored by Focusrite, which gives you the opportunity to do that. <laughs> Good. I've, I've, and I've remembered to thank them without being reminded. This is just the perfect end to the podcast. I was just looking to see if I, any of my, my Focusrite interfaces are around here. They're actually all in use at the moment. I have an 8i8 and a 2i2, and they're both they're both being used on, in, in one in the studio next door, which is my wife's, and one on a computer downstairs. There you have it. It's like we're pros, and there we go. <laughs> well, steady on. Got to love. Steve, thank you very much. It's been great. I, I would recommend, and we'll put links on the show notes, but I would recommend your website. I'd recommend having delved into some of your writing this afternoon. I'd recommend uh, having a look at, at, at some of the stuff that Steve's uh, put together. Um, d- don't put 10 or 15 minutes aside and get a brew before you start. <laughs> uh, it's not something you're going to be skimming. Um, but it's very, very interesting. And hopefully, Steve, catch up with you. Uh, well, hopefully catch up with you at, at the show next year. Oh, yes. It's in my diary already. Yeah. Fantastic. Jace, you take care. I'll catch up with you soon. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9 to 42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production. Hold up. 